For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today's guest is a New York Times bestselling author, known for his many amazing D&D-themed books such as Arts and Arcana, Empire of Imagination, and the Heroes' Feast cookbook, which also has gotten its own show. So please welcome the one and only, the very talented, Michael Whitwer to Epic Realms. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, really, really grateful for that intro. We... um. We were chatting a little bit beforehand, and we were talking a little bit about communications and and marketing. And you kind of wear a lot of hats. You do a little bit of that. You've done a little bit of acting, a little bit of writing and producing. Where does this all kind of stem from? At the very least, if we go back in the way back when time machine, where do these all these little things come from, and how do they all kind of tie together? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think um, it's funny. There's not much method to the madness other than the fact that I think I, I've always chased my passions and. I'm very grateful to my parents who I think encouraged a lot of it other than some D and D beware satanic panic concern in the eighties outside of that. Been there, been there. Um, right. Exactly. I think my parents have always encouraged uh, me and my brother to, you know, to chase things we were really interested in. We were always very theatrical and having a brother like I did, my, my, my older brother, Sam, who, who a lot of you may know um, uh, as a, as an actor, he's he's a well known actor. He does the voice of Darth Maul, for example, and he was the leading character on the U.S. version of Being Human, for example. Um, uh, he was, you can imagine, he was a really talented, very theatrical person. And I was kind of, I was three years younger, so I was kind of chasing him around, right? And he, I would be his guinea pig, and he could get me to play in whatever game or stage production or whatever he had going on. But that was what a great opportunity to, you know, to, to be around someone who's, who's so right. passionate and get pulled into all of his, if we were watching Battlestar Galactica that day, that's how it was going to go because that's what Sam wanted to watch. Um, so to answer your question, um, I was into a lot of really fun, geeky things, uh, when I was a kid in the eighties and that never left. It never left. I mean, I played D and D since I, or as early as I can remember, we played the star Wars role-playing game as soon as it came out in 1987. Um, and I just had a lot of passions. I just I pursued things with kind of a lot of a, a lot of zeal, and um, and so over time, uh, as I grew up and became like you know, uh, I started to realize the real world was not just hanging around like playing your passions or, or doing right. that type of thing. Um, what one thing that I don't know that I planned it this way. I don't think I did. Um, you know, I I, um, I I had gone to school for for music and theater actually at Northwestern. I, I'm from Chicago and I, I stayed here um, went to school at Northwestern. And I came out, I really wanted to do musical theater, things like that, right? And yeah. that, that was certainly a passion, right? But it was also something I was, I was interested in. I had trained a lot in it and so forth. Uh, but like so many things, the real world kind of took over. I ended up taking a job in marketing. That was, you know, it was a job kind of writing and doing a lot of marketing stuff. Uh, that was almost 20 years ago at this point. And um, one thing that the common thread, however, is that on the side, I would always gravitate back to things that I was really interested in. And so there's kind of a whole story in this, but long story short, um, my writing career that kind of happened very unexpectedly. That's a whole other story that we okay. can get, get into if we have time today. Okay. But um, my, my writing career, um, I, I very naturally gravitated to things that I was super passionate about my whole life. And it was things like, you know, 80s cabinet arcade video games or things like Dungeons and Dragons. And so my first book, Empire of Imagination, was was directly derivative out of that really intense interest in D&D that I had grown up with. Yeah. And once I had really kind of figured out um, how to do this, that was naturally where I wanted to put my time. And as you can see, that snowballed into a lot of, or as, as you as you kind of alluded to, that snowballed into a lot of books, either about D and D or uh, uh, kind of uh, adjacent to D and D. You might say so. Right. Um, I think it's, it was just ultimately about like following passions that I was really interested in, um, and just chasing those things around and finding different applications for them. Right. 
maybe I'm not on stage on Broadway singing about D and D, but I sure as heck can write about it these days. And that's kind of fun. So, but did your, did your, like you going to school for theater and stuff like that, did any of that help you? Cause you get an idea of how stories are told and how things should be presented to an audience. And that does translate to written form. And I'm assuming that did that help a lot? It most certainly does. I, I actually think you end up learning a lot of things that you don't even realize you're learning, especially when you're talking about traditional theater, drama, stage, uh, or film for that matter. Um, you start picking up on kind of very organically, you pick up on story development and story arc and dialogue, maybe most importantly, dialogue, the way things are supposed to sound and the way they sound naturally or the way as an actor, you might approach them uh, and interpret them or, 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 you know, or motivate them. And it's not a big stretch to take that same motivation and just basically inhabit your character and realize instead of performing something or motivating it, you now you're just writing it. Yeah. You're just speaking as your character and you happen to be putting that on paper. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Yeah, a lot of people think there's a huge disconnect between these different disciplines, but uh, I tend to believe just about anything. And that's not just theater and the arts. I would, I would argue that, um, you know, one of the things that my, my regular job, I'd mentioned this to you, to you earlier before we started, my regular job is I'm, I'm uh, the head of marketing at a, at a healthcare company. That's, that's my regular job. And I would argue marketing and the kind of writing and creative stuff that I do over there is really much closer to um, writing books than I think a lot of people realize. I, yeah. I, I find the process to be actually quite aligned. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm going to agree 110%. And they help. They help each other too, not just they their do. line, but they also help each other. We were talking about that a little bit as well. You mentioned the empire of imagination. How did that kind of come to be? You mentioned it was kind of your passion, but did you have a big investment in, in Gary Gygax? Did you, did you ever meet him before or any of that kind of like, how did that kind of come about? Yeah, sure. So uh, again, as I said, I, I don't know that I, I may, I, mean, I didn't say this. I, I didn't ever really intended to become a writer per se. Mm -hmm. I was involved in a lot of things. I was passionate. I, I, I like to think I was a pretty decent writer, even as coming out of high school. I had a lot of good teachers, you know, growing up. So I think I had relatively good technique and so forth. Uh, and coming out of college and then doing as much intense, um, you might say, training around drama and uh, and literature in different ways just through college and, and through my master's. But I'll get to the master's in a second. So um, the way it came about um, is uh, I had been working in marketing for a few years. and like so many people, I was at a point in my career, I'm like, what am, who do I want to be? What do I want to be? Like, is this what I want to do? Do I want to try to, you know, move to New York and take my chances as an actor? Do I like, what, what is it going to be? And I, and I was, I was married by then. And, um, and so we were relatively settled down here in the Chicago area. And uh, I decided I would join a master's program, the University of Chicago. I applied to, to be in a continuing education master's program. So this one was the Graham School of what they call liberal studies, liberal liberal arts. So it's a, it's a pretty general master's. Yeah. But from my my perspective, it was it was it was important because it was an opportunity to broaden my horizons at a lot of different things. What was really neat about the program is it was taught by really really exceptional, um, very established, like emeritus professors from the university in different spaces. So you weren't just taking a class with a, like a physicist, you were taking a class with the head of Fermilab and you would take a class with, um, I'll give you an example. The Shakespeare and Marlowe class was with David Bevington, who is like the penguin editor of all their Shakespeare. Stuff. Like, so yeah. like really established, amazing, amazing people. And so I decided I would enter that program with an intent of trying to finish that out and, by the time I would, was done, and that could take anywhere from like one to five years, depending on how long it stretches out. By the time I was done, I was convinced I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to know what, who I want to be and what I want to do for a living, which is a pretty ambitious goal. But that was right. that was the point, right? That was the right. idea. So I go through this program. I, I probably take longer than any ever person alive has ever taken the program. I took all five years, okay. and it's not that many classes. So I'm going to tell you, I, I stretched this out. But I was paying out of pocket, so I, I had to meter this. Um, so um, by the time – I the, the the program uh, once you finish the last class the the, the program is you have to um, finish a master's thesis or a master's special project right. before you can be done which is I think pretty common with a lot yeah, of master's yeah, programs so I had been working on a uh, a topic that's that was kind of esoteric and it wasn't really going anywhere and one day when I was about a maybe about a year before I was going to turn into a pumpkin they were I mean, they were literally going to kick me out of the program because I was in too long I was about a year before I was at that point. And I some I one day it hit me like a lightning bolt that um, I came up with this idea, or I got the idea um, 
about doing something about Gary Gygax. And I think I had tripped on an article about him. I, I don't remember what it was. But now, th- keep in mind, this is this is around 2012. So this is about four years after he had passed away. Yeah, okay. Now, I'm from Chicago. So, and I and Nick, I think you mentioned you're from St. Paul, Minnesota, which is, of course, the other ground zero of Dungeons & Dragons, <laughs> yep. where Dave Arneson's from. So uh, I'm from Chicago. Chicago is only 80 miles from Lake Geneva, where, where Gary uh, grew up and, and where he lived and where he founded TSR, the, the company right. that produced D&D. So um, I always had known about Gary because he was on the front of all these books that we grew up with, yeah. right? But for me, he was at best this shadowy figure that you kind of heard whispers about. And of course, growing up during the 80s and like the satanic panic, he was even kind of a shadowy figure. I remember that was a name in our household. Like, who is this Gary Gygax? Like, what's his deal? And he runs this game that's this bizarre intellectual game that makes kids go crazy, right? right. So he was, this, he was just this, this, this shadowy figure. And one day I read an article about him. And it sure sounded like he had a really interesting life. Like, oh, my gosh, like, what, what is this all about? So uh, it was just a brief article. But I remember thinking, well, this is this is really fascinating. So I started digging into this and I landed on this notion like, oh, my gosh. You know, firstly, as someone who grew up with playing role playing games, I instantly recognized the the things that that he and Dave Arneson established have a very long tail. I mean, it. You don't need to look very far around to see D&D's fingerprints all over everything, right. even as of 2012. Right. right. It's even more pronounced now. But even as, as of 2012, you, you, don't, you look at an MMO, you can look at just about any video game, the idea of hit points, whatever it is. You're like, D&D's fingerprints are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And it, and it also, you, you take shows like Community or shows like Big Bang Theory, that like this is showing up all over the place yeah. among big creatives. So, so, of course, I looked for a biography about Gary and couldn't find one. I'm like, that's, huh? Someone that's that important? The co-creator of D&D? doesn't have something written about him. Like this is like a really important character in history. So um, coming back to the special project, I decided to drop whatever I was working on at that point. I said, I'm going to do a biographical assignment or a special project about Gary Gygax. And the reason I, it all came together pretty quick was because a, I was super interested. I mean, I played D and D my whole life, but I didn't know much about the, the, the guy in particular Two, I'm in Chicago here and it occurred to me, and I, I did, I figured this out with pretty a small amount of research that I could actually contact people that were right there at ground zero. Yeah. That's a big deal as an author, especially when you write nonfiction, the notion that while Gary had passed away, a lot of people that were really formative and important to the game, people like Tim Cask, the original editor of Dragon Magazine or Jim Ward or, or people like that, they're all like around and they're not that hard to find and contact and talk to. Yeah. So that is a big, that's one of the, the biggest single items around this is this notion that if I'm going to write a book about Bill Gates, for example, I'm going to have a hell of a time getting the kind of access to people that are credible to talk about Bill Gates on a real private level. Right. 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 But D&D is a different animal. This is a very, this is a small community. You can go to a con and you can go sit down with Jim Ward and talk to Jim Ward about all the incredible things he's done or, 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 or whoever. Again, there's yeah. a big list of these people out there. I mean, every time I go to a convention, I see Ed Greenwood, for example, walk, yeah. walking around, right? So these people are, are present. And so what occurred to me is I could do a meaningful academic project around Gary because I could, I, I could get access to the people that I need to talk to, whether it be Luke Gygax, who was just at that point, just kind of had only run Gary Con for a couple of years yeah. or, or a lot of Gary's family and so forth. So I embarked on this project and sure enough, I was thrilled to see that I could get access to these people. And I did it as a, as, a, as a special project, a biographical project. And by the time I was done with it, about a year done with the project. So about a year later, I had about 60,000 words on the page. I had done 20 some interviews. I had done a lot of meaningful work. And by that time, it occurred to me, I've got almost a book length project here. Yeah. So not only did I finish the master's, but I immediately thought I should actually take this and shop this to an agent to see if I can get them to pick it up. And, and, and that's exactly what I did. And I went through that whole process right. and uh, cut another year, year and a half later, um, we had sold our book to Bloomsbury and uh, Empire of Imagination was born, which became, that became the, the book about uh, Gary Gygax. Yeah, that's awesome. That is, a, that is really cool. And I was going to ask you, like, did you get to talk to people like Luke and, and, or Ed or, you know, any of the people you had mentioned? That's really cool that you got to talk to them and get that inside knowledge about that because I can, I can only imagine that research for something like that while difficult and a process again for you you were you were there near right near ground zero so you had access to them so that makes it a whole hell of a lot easier so yeah that's amazing well and a single con can do it like at least in those days you could go to a right. single con like a Gary con and you could see this literally this hall of fame 
of people that right. are on the front of your right. books. I mean, like like really substantial people with incredible resumes. And you know, they 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 always want to talk to you, or they want to play a game with you, or whatever. And that it was pretty cool. But again, also amazing to me to think that wow, these are like super important people to the history of gaming, not not just role playing games, but right. all games. And here they are, just like hanging out. You know, yeah. pretty wild. Just pretty chilling. Wild. Did so. What happened from there? Did did. You know, did Wizards of the Coast see that book and go, "Hey, we got to get a hold of this guy," or did you go to them? Like, how did the how did the next step of some of these other books come to be? Obviously, you ended up getting put with a team of you know the other two, um, um, Kyle and uh, John. How how did that whole how did that whole thing come to be? Where you ended up getting with them guys and starting to work for Wizards. Yeah. So it's actually kind of the first thing that you had suggested. That's about how it came about is that there was a couple of people at Wizards. If if memory serves on this, there was a couple of people at Wizards that that got wind of the book and and read it and really liked it. I, I know one, one of them was Chris Perkins. Mike Merles was another. Um, and then I also I knew at the time Rodney Thompson, who's no longer there. In fact, he he left, I want to say, just before fifth edition rolled out. But Rodney was a really important um, designer there, not only for fifth edition, uh, doing a lot of the work up to it, but also like Lords of Waterdeep, for example, he's the, the co-designer of that game. So Rodney was a friend of my brother's. Uh, they knew each other from various gaming circles and so okay. forth. And so I got to know Rodney a little bit. So point being is there was a couple of people at Wizards that I got to know a little bit as part of that process. And they just liked the book and they were extremely kind. And I, I remember like spending a bunch of time with Chris Perkins at, at an early Gary Con, I think it was, who just loved the book. Um, so I just, it was, it was really wonderful. But the truth was, at that point, again, I didn't know where I wanted to go from there as an author. I, I had no particular plan. I just right. finished this thing. I was thrilled about it. I, I really loved how it came out. And the reception, I was just just amazed by it. But so what got interesting there is actually when somewhere in 2016, maybe late 2016. So, and again, I'll get back to why it became important. I knew those people from Wizards of the yeah. Coast. Um, at that point, uh, a friend of my brother's actually, Kyle Newman. So okay. Kyle is a film director. Now, now my brother, of course, Hollywood actor lives in Hollywood, as does Kyle Newman. Kyle Woman is, Newman is a, a film director. He did Fanboys and uh, a bunch of other movies. In fact, he's got a really neat film that he just produced that's coming out called A Disturbance in the Force, which is a documentary about the upcoming the, uh, the 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 Star Wars holiday special from 1978. It sounds really, really great. So, so, you know, so Kyle is in the geek space, right? Yeah. And of course, of course he knows my brother from star Wars and all this other stuff. And so they're tight. Kyle called me one day. uh, I think we were maybe Facebook friends, but, but one day he called me, if memory serves on this in like late 2016, about a year after my book had originally come out and he loved my book as well. And he said, I loved how, um, one thing I did with empire of imagination, which is here. Um, uh, so one thing that that I we, I did with Empire of Imagination is I wrote this book in a what would they call a narrative nonfiction style. So in other words, I wanted the book um, outside of the the research I had done as part of the project. I wanted the final book to actually read like a novel because it it to be honest it felt weird to tell a story of somebody like Gary in a in a in more of like a dry kind of traditional yeah. nonfiction style. I mean, you could do yeah. it. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with that. It's just I wanted to like really. I wanted to like see things through his eyes. I wanted to walk in his footsteps, and I wanted the reader to do the same. Right. So I followed a style that a lot of really spectacular authors out there uh, have really perfected, and that's certainly not me, but people like Eric Larson, if you know him, Devil in the White City is one of his big books, Garden of Beasts, um, and people like Ben Mesrick, who wrote writes books like uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, Nick, um, The Accidental Billionaires, which became The Social Network, the movie. Yeah. Um, so they write these books that read like novels, but they're 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 nonfiction. So I wanted this book to read like that. Yeah. And Kyle, Kyle um, and I had communicated a little bit because I think he was actually pretty interested in adapting Empire of Imagination to a film, like a, oh, like okay. a biopic. Okay. And so uh, Kyle and I got talking and Kyle, I remember one day called and said, hey, Mike, you know, the D&D space, you've written a book on this, loved your book. Where's the art book? I remember that's those are the words he said, where's the art book? And I remember as a longtime D&D guy being like, well, where's the art book? Well, they did a Dragonlance one in 1988 and they did like, like they did, there's a worlds of TSR. They did like art books. They've done art books before in the eighties and nineties. But of course his point was not, has there ever been an art book? His point was Mike, you know, remember this is 2016. So D and D is very much on the rise by this point, right? The fifth edition era had begun. They were very much on the up and up. And Kyle was sitting there very much with his finger on the pulse. He had started a new five E game uh, home game that had been very successful for him. And he said, Mike, like this thing's kind of blowing up where's the art book at the store? Like, shouldn't there be an art book about this? So I remember I went over to Barnes and Noble 
And I remember looking around and, and sure as heck, I saw the art of Assassin's Creed and I saw the art of World and World of Warcraft yeah. this and the art of pretty much everything, but Art of Atari, which was actually a great yeah. book. Um, there, there was no D&D art book. Batman and I'm like, oh, he's on to something. Yeah, you know, a gazillion Star Wars, right? A gazillion yeah. Star Wars yeah. encyclopedias and so forth. No D and D book in this space, and so I remember got back to Kyle and said, "Kyle, I think you're onto something. Like there is no art book, and th- those were th- those were the terms we were thinking of at that point." So I'm like, "Okay, well, let's let's dig into this a little bit." So at that point, I remember I kicked the tires with some of my new colleagues at Wizards of the Coast. Right, yeah. this is where it all connects. So I remember talking to Chris Perkins about it. I remember talking to Mike Merles about it. They connected me with Liz Shu over there. Liz was is the director, is still is the director of publishing over there. Um, um, and she's been there for a long time. She's a wonderful person. And so I remember talking to Liz about it, and uh, she's like, you know, there might be something here or whatever. And I remember she, you know, we were going to reconnect on this. And um, what it I, this is what happened. She said, Oh, you know, Mike, it's funny you're calling it this time or you're reaching out this time because penguin random house just reached out and they want to do something together just like this just like what you're talking about something big and visual and so forth yeah uh, an imprint called 10 speed so at that point i decided it was time to build um to, to assemble the avengers um and right. so i i got obviously me and kyle uh pulled together and i said you know we can't do this book without the number one D expert in the world that's john peterson who happened to be a very close friend of mine by this time because i knew him when i was writing on pirate of imagination he yeah. was really important to my research so i brought in john peterson immediately and then of course i brought in my brother who was the one that taught me to play DD, the best dm that i knew and someone who knew well knew kyle really well he was kind of our connecting point so that was the avengers that i pulled together to uh to work on what became this book called art and arcana so the rest, you know, is a little bit history there is that we pulled together with Penguin Random House. We were hugely aligned, but where I think the rubber hit the road when we started that book. And so I've got, um, you know, this, these, these huge coffee table books in this case, Art and Arcana. So I think what got exciting there is when Penguin Random House, they, they gave us a contract to do this thing. But what we decided was art book wasn't going to cut it. An art book in and of itself is, is, is cool and it's, it could be beautiful. But it's otherwise a somewhat inessential piece. It's a, it's kind of a, well, it's, it's a coffee table book. They call it that for a reason. It's almost like a piece of furniture, right? right. Um, we decided early in the process, no, 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 forget art book. Let's do a visual history. And the difference was, and I think the, 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 the thing that made all the difference was that um, we realized if we told the story of the brand through the visuals, there's two things that would happen. Firstly, um, it's a much more interesting story than otherwise choosing disparate random art that you think looks cool from any given era. It's like, oh, look yeah. here, look. Yeah. But if you tell the story of the brand through the visuals, first of all, it helps you curate what the story you're trying to tell is, you know, from left to right. It also helps you, um, it, it also allows you to incorporate things that aren't art, but are visuals, such as ephemera, photography, pictures of dice, like all kinds right. of different advertising. Right. One of the things that we discovered when we did Art and Arcana is that like advertising alone tells you so much of what's going on with Dungeons and Dragons from 1974 or 72, whenever right. we started that, all the way through the present era where you know we ended that that particular book around 2016 or whatever. Um, and so uh, that, I think, became the difference and why it became such a successful book is with Art and Arcana, I think the market realized, oh, A we got some really spectacular disruptive things that people hadn't seen ever without the text bubble and without the trade dress. Um, You know, one of our original goals was getting the wraparound uh, advanced D and D book covers without any, like the original um, pictures of those that no one had ever seen. Um, So that was one of them. But, but the other piece was that because we were telling a coherent story, you could literally flip through this book and kind of get the story of D and D as a brand, like with the sound off, you could kind of, you know, all this crunchy, like old, like sketchy stuff in the beginning that was done by local 14 year olds all the way up through the Larry yeah. Elmore and Jeff Easley and Keith Parkinson era. It How were you getting a, a hold of some of these items? Because like the hand drawn maps, you know, that they, mm. Gary Gygax draws, uh, draws up or, you know, the original art of the 14 year old kids. Does Wizards of the Coast say we have this and just send it to you, figure out a place to put it? Or do you go searching for who worked on what and do you have anything from this era? Like how did, how did you get those pieces? Uh, the private collector market to answer your question. So wizards didn't have it. Remember wizards doesn't acquire the brand until, until what? 98. Yeah. Um, and so, um, this stuff, this stuff had been spread to the four corners of the earth for probably 20 years prior to that. I mean, it, it, it had been in the, the private collector market forever. And so this became, I, I've said this before, 
this became Art and Arcana became an, ar an archaeology project more than anything else. It became a project. It became more about actually trying to find really remarkable things. Well, not more about it, but as much about finding remarkable things and, sh and sharing them in their original native form as it was about telling the story of the brand through through visuals. So consider. Um, I remember one of the, the things that that John got a hold of really early on that was just like, wow. Um, so we had, a, we had a few early goals. Uh, we happened to know a lot of the big collectors in the space. That was extremely helpful, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so we knew where we could get some of these original um, native pieces without having to, you know, basically like scan something from the book or so and so forth. Because we knew there was value in doing like a spread that was nothing but the original player's handbook you know, painted image with no text bubble on the back that no one's ever seen under yeah. uh, or a trade dress like that had value. So one of our original goals was let's let's feature all five of those. Let's let's make it our goal to get all five of those and maybe, you know, the basic the, the original Sutherland basic uh, set cover or whatever. And let's just show them just full page, full bleed. Like, let's just show them like that, because that's so disruptive by itself. Right. And cool. um, and super cool. Amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, like no one had ever seen this stuff like this, right. you know, us included. I mean, I, I, again, I remember getting chills. It, it was like being Indiana Jones when he uncovers the Ark. Like I, I getting, I remember getting chills when some of this stuff, we would find it or it would, it would pop up in a shared, um, uh, a shared Dropbox that we were using. I mean, it was just an amazing process to kind of like scour and find all this stuff. Um, but I mean, like stuff like, like this, I remember John had recently tripped on getting access to, um, Gary Gygax's original Tomb of Horrors tournament materials. So yeah. it was stuff like this. The markets didn't even know existed. I mean, there was, there right. was, don't get me wrong. There were some people that knew it existed, but you know, everyone knows Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors, of course, is, is both a punchline. It's also the most dangerous <laughs> adventure in D and D and AD and D history. Right. But what most people didn't realize that played the game even early on was that Tomb of Horrors was originally a 1975 tournament yeah. uh, module for lack of a better term that Gary had built to run ju it's just that it's a tournament uh at Origins. that was like right at the beginning right that was right at the beginning of dnd people were still so people were showing up and didn't even know what dnd was and trying yes. to join this deadly here's dnd you died make a new character <laughs> oh man spike through your head sorry you just got <laughs> killed on the fire slide um so exactly no so yeah D, so dnd right was brand new when when gary did this and, and he was at origins one in baltimore uh, which is a game fair. It was like it was like an early convention. It was actually a competitor to his own Gen Con, which he had founded seven years earlier. And uh, he's at Origins One. He's, he's running uh, with he and a few other people, um, early TSR employees, including his son Ernie. They're running the original Tomb of Horse, which is a, done as a tournament. And again, the context of it, most people don't realize, is that it was so deadly because it needed to be. It was intended to actually create a really simple way that people could win. And, and I, that is to say it needed to be deadly so that you could knock off all of the other hundred people playing it so that it, that, that it could be clear who the winner, who got the furthest and survived or, or, or finished it, which was like nobody. Um, <laughs> but so th that was one of the reasons why it was like so comically deadly. Right. But so finding those original materials that Gary used for that was so enlightening. Cause you know, what we, what you find is you guys original typed, you know, manuscript, which was remarkable to find with hand annotations and all this stuff. And we, by the way, we actually reprinted this, all these materials in the um, special edition. It was, it was such a magical thing to be able to do this. Um, but it was the first time that he had done, um, he had a local kid that was a friend of his daughter's from class. He was a 14 year old named Tracy Lesh, who was a local late Geneva kid. And he had had, and, and the reason he got to know him is that, 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 um, his daughter saw him, I think it was Heidi, saw him drawing in class and thought he was a pretty good drawer. I'll introduce him to my dad. And sure enough, Gary starts paying him a couple bucks a panel to do various early D and D drawings. Like he did the original boot Hill illustrations. He did a lot of early illustrations. So he had this kid, Tracy Lesh do these original panels for tomb of horrors, which Gary was going to use to show people. The idea was in tomb of horrors in the original tournament was that he would be able to show these panels just like actually in the, the, the later module. Yeah. Um, and, and it would give players, a, 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 a basically continuity and a visual cue. They could all agree on. They're all seeing the same thing right. and how to react to it. Right. And that could be the face of the great green devil on the wall, or it could be the creepy hallway with the little box on the wall when you first walk in, whatever it might be. Right. So there's like 30 of these panels. Well, seeing the original Tracy Lesh panels was like a mind blowing experience because we all knew the super famous panels from the Trampier and Sutherland era 
from the, the published module from 79, but we had never seen these in the market by and large, had never seen these before. And so to be able to roll those out and provide some context about something like Tomb of Horrors and why it was the yeah. way it was. Yeah. And by the way, you know, those panels that you know and love that are all iconic today, here are the ones that 14 Tracy Lesh did all the same topic, but done by a 14 year old kid. Like, oh, there's the four armed gargoyle and just seeing how they were rendered. It was, it was magical. It was like finding um, you know, like an earlier manuscript of some great work, you know? Yeah, yeah. So things like that were just so unbelievably exciting. We were so charged up for that project. So I'm not sure if I'll ever work on another project quite like that. I mean, that was like <laughs> an Indiana Jones type adventure. Right. That's awesome. So then we go into some of these other books too, right? You know, I, I hate to rush along, but, but mm. you have Lord Legends and the Legend of Drifts that you did. How did those change after you did the first one? You got that first one out there, and th are they like we, we're going to do more? We're just we're just going to keep throwing stuff at you, and you're like bring them on. Yeah, a little bit. A little, so all this stuff, as, as you're suggesting, all this stuff did snowball, right? Like I didn't, I didn't even know if I was to do another book about. I got to tell you, in 2016, you know, when I talked to Kyle, I wasn't sure if I was going to do another D and D book. I was really interested in doing a book about Walt Disney and the opening of Disneyland. Like I was, I was doing other things. Uh, and it was, I was going to, you know, probably look at a lot of the nonfiction, like the traditional nonfiction space. So all of a sudden, Art and Arcana comes together, and that was just a magical project. And it, it you know, it it was a bestseller, and it was it nominated for a Hugo, and all the like. It was it was really a special project with a really great team of people that we just enjoyed the heck out of it. Had a great experience with the publisher as well. That was Penguin Random House. Ten Speed oh, Press yeah. is the imprint. Yeah. So uh, the next thing again came out very organically, which was 10 speed came to us, the publisher, uh, uh, a fellow named Aaron, great guy. He came to us. Now, Aaron is, a um, he runs a couple of imprints at Penguin Random House. He, he runs 10 speed. He also runs Clarkson Potter. Clarkson Potter is, uh, both of those imprints actually are known for very graphical, beautiful books. Uh, but, but cookbooks are one of their big things, right? Especially Clarkson Potter. Yeah. So he was the publisher of Barefoot Contessa. Okay. So he knows this space like really well. So he came to us and said, Hey, our Narcon has gone great. We're wrapping that up. We're thrilled about it. We had a great experience with, with you guys. I've always had this idea to do a D and D cookbook. What do you yeah. think? We're like, uh, okay. So, and and themed, you know, cookbooks, us, themed cookbooks are huge right now. Huge. I mean, huge. you go into, you go into the shelf, like, uh, you know, they had the Marvel cookbook that uh, was written by, um, uh, Justin Warner. You've mm -hmm. got, you, you know, you, you can go in there now and you can be like, Oh, this is a, Bob's Burgers cookbook and a yes. you know whatever whatever there's a cookbook for everything so a D and D cookbook it makes so much sense because taverns and bars and food that like that's a huge part of D and D totally absolutely right I mean it, it, it was again it was it was way smarter than it seemed right it, at first we were kind of like a D and D cookbook we're like first of all none of us are professional chefs like mm -hmm. like like but he said hey no you 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 guys know the lore though let's figure out what we can do so we actually got together as a team. Now, my brother actually just gotten pulled into another project. I don't remember what, what it was at the time, but he had to drop out for that book, for the first okay. Heroes Feast, which which became Heroes Feast here. Uh, Sam had to drop out for that project. So it, we, it was left with, with me, Kyle, and John. And yeah. we looked at it really seriously and said, do we want to do, like, firstly, we are not going to do a gimmicky cookbook. We are not going to do one of these, like, throw a D&D &D logo on the cover. Oh, D&D &D mac and cheese. You know, like, we are not going to do it. No way. It's got to like, make thematic sense. Yes. And we, we, we were only going to do this because we just come off this big, you know, groundbreaking visual history project. We're like, if we can move the ball forward on D&D &D lore, this is worth our time. Yeah. So what we did is we established a few ground rules for ourselves, which was let's let's do this. Let's let's basically figure out a method by which we we look at everything D&D &D that we've just actually been looking at for the last you know many, many years. <laughs> right. But now through the lens of food, which is, by the way, a really interesting exercise, you know, take some take a subject, you know, pretty well, and all of us know pretty D&D &D pretty well at this point. But if you've never had cause to look at it through a very particular lens, it, there's a lot of things you just kind of glaze over and food was one of them. We had never had any reason to think about D&D &D food in particular, right? right? And so all of a sudden we're looking through these same materials and you look at it through the lens of food and wow, you find all these amazing, really interesting things. So we came up with two big goals, one of which is that we were going to scour these, you know, 40 some years of material and find every notable dish that's out there. Right. And that's Something everything that's been from, mentioned in the books and in the, in the, you know, authors and gaming. Yeah. Yeah. Every, right. Like everything from Otix spiced potatoes to, you know, uh, you know, to, to having, uh, you know, Rothe steak or whatever. Yeah. So we're, we're going to, we're going to get all that stuff. We're going to get it down on paper and we're going to figure out what the lore is behind it. If there's any meaningful lore, fortunately, as you probably know, Nick, 
there was a whole series of like Volos guys from the early nineties. There is. I love the Volos guys. Nothing, nothing but you know Volo running around talking about the 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 food they have at this this inn and so forth. And so, and, and then Ed Greenwood actually did a ton of work on this. Oh, I mean, yeah. Aurora's Whole Realms Guide is nothing but like food and dry goods, and so there's a ton of stuff on this. Um, so we we went to did the exercise, but the other thing we wanted to do is we thought. We want this to, like, if it's a cookbook or not, whatever. Like, I hope it's a good cookbook. What we wanted it to be was two things. We wanted it to be basically a source book about food and and foodways. So we wanted to do basically a really deep profile about how do elves think about food? How do they source food? What's their dining etiquette? So thinking about these different D&D cultures and really breaking down what would be in literally the player's handbook if it was just food, food-like yeah. themed. And so we we went a lot of deep re- research on that in addition to finding the foods themselves. And then our last goal was, and then we want to take the photography and really up the game and we want to bring this stuff to life. It's been, it's been very seldom that D&D has ever been brought to the physical realm. At that point, it was like the 2000 movie. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was kind of it. <laughs> and so we're like, we want it. So like we wouldn't have like a Thank bunch you, Jeremy of Jeremy like, Irons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boy, is he something in that movie. Wow. Um, we had a bunch of like artifacts made from the D and D books. We had, we had them like 3d printed. They, like, um, WizKids didn't like make them yet for mass consumption. So we had them made. Um, so we could like put them in the book and we would use gold dragons from Waterdeep. And we wanted to make sure that the photography itself was feeling very in world that we could bring D and D to life. So the combination of all those things, um, and that book came out in 2020. Um, so again, that's two years, about two years to the day after Art and Arcana. Um, and the market just absolutely loved that book. Yeah. Um, and, and I think they could feel the love that went into it, that it was not like just this gimmick, like, oh, look, water deep chicken finger. You know, it was it was like stuff that you actually find in the game and that it was thought out. So, yeah, yeah. Um, th- that book, get, yeah. How did you get Adam Reed from um, America's Test Kitchen? Right. He helped work on that and some of those and, recipes. How did you guys so, get him to brought, brought in? Yeah. So Adam Reed, Adam Reed was the chef. So, so he was the honest chef. So he was brought in by 10 speed, which was great because they know, they know chefs and they know cookbooks, right? right? So they know how to make a great cookbook. They just didn't know how to make a D and D cookbook. Yeah. That was where we came in. Right. So this project was the ultimate collaborative effort, right? It was the D and D team doing our, our deep lore, figuring out how the book would be structured, the photography, even the, the production design. We worked with every aspect of it, including Adam Reed. And the way we would work with Adam Reed, usually through the, the editor, who was also a professional chef at 10 Speed, is we would, we, would, um, we would give Adam either our notes on what we wanted to make, uh, or we would give him the whole head note. That was more common, is that we would actually pre-write the head note and say, here, Adam, here's what you need to know. It's this. Here's the lore behind it. Here's what you need to know. Bop, 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 you know, bop, 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 bop. Adam would take it. He'd build the dish. And he'd come back to us for our approval. And it was not uncommon uh, it was actually relatively common, you know, probably 10 to 20% of the time we would come back and say, no, this, this won't work because of this and this. Sometimes it was a, it was a source ingredient that wouldn't work uh, in this particular realm or however yeah. this was done. Or sometimes it was just something that was feeling off based on the concept as it was described in say the Volo's guide or, right. um, or whatever adventure we had mined it from. That was a very common place to get things as well. So um, it was a really collaborative. So we would just go back and forth this way. And we got to work with this incredible um, professional chef who came up with all these super creative ideas, but we would really push him hard to make sure that we were really making something uh, unique and interesting and not again, like water deep chicken fingers. That was, that right. was the part we were drawing the line. We were not going to make a book like that. Yeah. Um, so this collaboration, professional photographers, production designers, editors, chefs um, came together for this, this thing. And it was just, it was a magical process. I, again, I, I, I was so grateful. They brought this to us. And so that thing did, gangbusters that that thing was just hugely successful in the market and kind of snowballed to other things and so you know bringing you present on that as you as you probably know or as you may know oh, there's yeah. been now a sequel to the cookbook yep that I just came out about that yeah yeah and there's been a sequel to art and arcana actually so the new lauren legends book we just worked on basically is um is is an honest sequel to art and arcana we basically petered out around 2016 in that book and five fifth edition has become so disruptive over the last you know this the 10-year story fifth edition is so amazing yeah we decided we should devote a whole 450 page book of the same scope on just that to see how this whole thing came about so we've had a real blast kind of looking at those 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 two um yeah. uh, properties that's great and so you also there's also the new and I don't know how much you can talk about it, but there's the show. There's the Heroes Feast show. Uh, how much do you have to work on that? Like, how much involvement do you have on it? 
And um, what what can you tell us about that? Well, again, it's I mean, if Nick, if someone had come to me five years ago and said that you're going to, you know, you're going to write a cookbook and then there's going to be a show based on that cookbook, I would have told them they were absolutely out of their minds. Um, but again, not if unless I knew the context. Oh, it's about the D and D thing, and you, this right, is the role. Right, you right, stay right. in your lane, Mike. <laughs> no problem. I'm always happy to stay in my lane, right? I, yeah. I, I'm. I, I know just enough to know what I don't know, right? Just give me some of the um, food I want to eat. <laughs> exactly. And so it, it, it's been unbelievable. So what ended up happening is that again, yeah, the, the the cookbook became so popular in so many different communities, and the fan community just loved it, and it's expanded upon it. And there's Facebook groups, all kinds of different groups that have really embraced the cookbook and a lot of the work that we had we had kind of pioneered. But again, we were just one piece of this big machine, um, and I don't mean machine in like an industrial way. I mean like machine, like a huge collaboration of of really creative people that did this incredible work. So um, that's that went so well. That um, they came up. Uh, uh, Hasbro um, Hasbro owns a production company, or did at the time, called E1, and E1 is, is known for a lot of different things. They produced the D and D movie, for example, earlier yeah. this year, and Peppa Pig, and a bunch of other things. So um, E1 got the idea to do a bunch of unscripted D and D programming. Yeah. So they wanted to kick off their own channel, their own fast channel. Uh, what do they call it? Free advertise, advertising, streaming, whatever TV their own D&D channel, and they would kick it off with three um, unscripted shows, two of which are actual play, um, similar to things like Critical Role and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one would be the first D&D cooking show, this one based on our book, Heroes yeah. Feast. So they brought us on to be consulting producers. We helped outline the episodes for them. We consulted on what dishes would make the most sense. We worked directly with Mike Harris to kind of help figure out how this would go a little bit. I mean, he, you know, he's the, he's the genius behind the whole thing. He has to do it on camera, but the, what one of the coolest parts for us has been not only are we, I, I think this is known. I, I, this might be known if it's not, it's a scoop. Um, we are, we are guests on one of the episodes. We are actually guests on one of the episodes, like, uh, like the, like the, you know, yeah. the, the, but we also were on every episode as the lore masters actually. So okay. we actually get a little spot right. to talk about the lore of the dish, which makes sense because every dish they're, they're cooking is from the D and D book. So it yeah. has some lore behind it. Um, so it's, it's been super cool. I mean, like I was so blown away when we got to come into that, they had this incredible production going. We came in very late in that process for our filming pieces. We came in very late in the process and we're there and they, we had this incredible crew of people that were just doing amazing work. So that show came out so much better than my expectations. And I have just been thrilled to be part of it. And that's really what we are. We're just a little small part of it doing our best to, to make it a little bit better. And the show feels like the book, like it feels like it came from the book, the color scheme, you know, the pa- the color palette of it, the way it's designed, even some of like the angles and stuff, even though it's humorous because D&D is humorous, role-playing is humorous. Yep. But there's also like, from what we've seen, there's quite a bit of humor in there and fun as well. And I think that that's been, that's been amazing. So uh, I, I really look forward to seeing, seeing how that comes along and the people that have in there. I followed, I've, I've followed Mike, uh, Chef Mike for uh, quite a while, uh, unbeknownst to anyone. I've always watched his like, you know, making fun of people's, thousand island or thousand island ketchup <laughs> in their mac and big mac sauce recipes and you know whatever other stuff he's done i've been following him for a while so it's really great to see him uh get something like this because he's a big big nerd and loves D as well oh, so mike is a riot by the way also a local guy he's in the chicago area uh, oh, really? for, yeah you'd think he was like you know on one of the coasters or something like that but he's a local guy uh, mike is a riot and he's huge so talented and so funny and just can do 25 things at once as, you know, as a lot of great chefs can. Yeah. Um, and he just, he just makes it work so beautifully. And again, it doesn't hurt. Then you get uh, people like Sujata day who does a brilliant job as the other host um, kind of helping, helping corral these guests that again, it, it's truly unscripted. Having been on it, I can tell you yeah. kind of put a camera in your face and say, go. And you know, you get personalities on like Matt Lillard. Matt Lillard. <laughs> And he lights up the room, but you have to also corral, you know, him and even people like us, you know, yeah. and help us cook these dishes and just have a lot of fun. It, it, it's been an amazing thing to be part of, for sure. That's great. That's great. I can't wait to see more of it. And uh, hopefully it does amazing. And of course, the new book, the new cookbook. Um, it's, so uh, it, that it's one good. is called Heroes Feast Flavors of the Multiverse. And so, yeah. So just a second on that one, if you'll indulge me. Yeah. This yeah. was super fun. So. For one thing, we got to bring the team back together. I, w- I was able to bring my brother back into this one. I shouldn't say I was. We wanted my brother to come back in on this one. He was done with whatever engagement was um, earlier, you know, from uh, pretty much during the pandemic. He was doing a bunch of voice work and a lot of other stuff. So he came back on board for the second cookbook. And uh, we did a couple of things that were super fun for this book. So 
Uh, I would I would argue that it's like Heroes Feast, but everything people liked about the first Heroes Feast, we turned up the volume on volume on big time. Awesome. So, um, for example, you know, when it comes to photography, it was just more photography, and and even better than that. One thing that drove us a little bit crazy in the first book. Now, I will tell you, the, the photography in the first book is really top notch as far as fantasy food photography goes. I I don't know that there's anything better than that. I mean, I mean, Ray Cacciatorian did an incredible job, but Food photography, by nature, in a book is 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 it's naturally very close. It has to be. It's a. Right. It's featuring the dish, but b. It's always done. It's almost always done in a studio or a kitchen. So there's not anything to show. There's often very little to show outside. Like you want to see the dish. What else, what would you show in the background of right. any interest? Right. But well, it's D&D. so for the, it's but it's D and D. So we thought we want to bring this to life. We want to rent a castle. This was literally how we started this conversation. We said we want to rent a castle. I love it to photograph in because we want this to be fully immersive and we don't want all the, the photography to be so close. And they were like, Oh, I don't know if that's in the budget. We're like, we don't care if it's in the budget. We want to do this. And so 10 speed and their production designers and their amazing editors and people they put together, they figured out there was a castle and unsurprisingly in Northern California <laughs> called Castillo de something. Um, and it was an imported castle. I, the weirdest, I don't know this. I, I can't even believe this is true, but this is according to what they stone by stone. It's an imported castle from Tuscany, stone by stone. Okay, and it's on like a winery and the whole thing, but it's it's a real deal uh, medieval castle. And so we rented this thing. I uh, know we did photo shoots in the studio as well. We did all the, the regular stuff. And we have incredible yeah. prop people and production designers to do that. Um, and we 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 go to every day of shooting and we consult and we make sure that things you know all make sense. And so, but we we got them to do the castle and we we ponied up a lot of our own money to do it because it was so important for us to bring that next level to D and yeah. D so that we could show the suits of armor and the giant fireplaces in the background and all the stuff that you would kind of expect to see in a dungeon or in a castle or in a, in a game of D and D. Um, and then we also kind of turned up the volume on some of the narrative aspects of it. We created this, this group of kind of wandering adventurers who are foodies that kind of drive the narrative. So the way that book is structured is unlike the first book, which is based on different cultures, like here's the elven section, here's the halfling section. That book is based on specific places within D&D. So you start at the Yawning Portal, and then we go to the Rock of Brawl, which is a spell jammer, you know, place. Yeah. And then we go from there to Salamnia, which is a place in the Dragonlance. You know, yeah, so they, they basically that's awesome. take a spell jammer to different places. They end up in Sigil, uh, so Planescape. They end up in, in Realm Space at one point, and they, they end in the, the Feywild. So these adventurers go to these different places and kind of go through all these adventures. Uh, and that's why we're eating the food we're eating at these different locales. So it was just super fun. And we, we really made it, uh, we didn't want to just save as we yeah. wanted to like give the people that love this book, something new and hopefully something even better than, than the last one. And what I love about them is that even, even if you're not a chef, even if you're not a cook, if you don't, if you don't do any cooking, you can pick up these books and use them as reference or role play as a GM yes. telling a story, you can use that stuff. And that I, that's one of the things that I think is so great about it. It's, it's got so many different facets uh, to that. So, so yeah. And, and, and by the way, Nick, that was exactly the idea. We wanted people to literally have this on the table independent of whether they would host game night and also cook or somebody else would bring over dishes to, you know, to, to basically pump up the D and D experience, right? Eat like your character. What a, right. what a cool thing to do. But in addition to that, again, the idea that the DM could use any of these foods to to, to get creative with, you know, whether it be uh, in game, just you know, menu options or whatever it might be. There, there's so many different things you can do with it. And of course, D and D players happen to be creative, so this is it was a very natural thing to fit all together. Uh, we were thrilled about it, honestly, and we we tripped on so many different things, Nick. Honestly, when you look at D and D history through the realm, the, the lens of food, you just find so many things that if you weren't looking through that lens, you just never see it. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of really early D and D stuff that, you know, a, a lot of the early modules, they have like little menus for the taverns. And so anybody might say, well, okay, big deal. So they do a menu. So why would this adventure do like eight dishes and four or five different drinks? And they all cost one to two silver pieces or whatever. Why would you do that? And the answer is a lot of the earliest D and D designers, I think recognize that food could be an avenue to make the game better simulation to make the yeah. game more real. Yeah. And the fact that they even bothered putting little menus says a lot about how the original designers of this game were thinking about it. I don't know if they were thinking about cookbooks per se, but they were certainly thinking about the idea that a lot of this stuff, you know, anything that enhances 
the realistic simulation elements of the game are good. They, they make the game more real, more visceral. Right. Um, so it was it was a pretty cool thing to be part of, for sure. Especially when half the half the parties, you start off in a tavern. Okay, let's tell what this looks like. What do you see? Description, description, description. Um, before before we before we move on and start to close this down, uh, I would be remiss in not talking about Vivian von Tassel and some of your work for schools that you mentioned to me off, off on the side. And I know we're running a little late, but I still want to talk about it. So so let's let's talk about it. Tell us about the book. Uh, tell us about some of your work with schools you've been doing lately. Uh, tell us, tell us, tell us. And I love yeah, no, the art, by you. the way. I love the art, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the art the art was done. Uh, the cover art was done by um, uh, by a fellow named Raymond Sebastian. Um, who uh, works for Ubisoft actually in, in France? Uh, he's, I think, he's a concept art, artist with them. Did this incredible cover. We got a chance to work with him and art directed a little bit, but he did he did all the magic. Um, so Vivian Van Tassel, this project is very near. Uh, thank you for asking, Nick, because this project is super near and dear to me. Now all of these are. Don't get me wrong. All my books, I love them equally. Right? These are my children. Right? Uh, in addition to my children, who I love, I love even more than my books. But um, so Vivian Van Tassel, um, this is my first published novel. And it's a middle grade fantasy novel. So middle grade, it's funny. I've, I've heard people, be, when I say middle grade, they'll be like, middle, why would you describe your own book as middle grade? Isn't it good? I'm like, no, no. Middle grade is a, is a category of book. I mean, it's like middle, middle ages, like middle, middle grades. Right. So think uh, it's made for, for kids basically like third grade through seventh grade, right? And think books like Harry Potter and Percy Jackson and Fablehaven and books like yeah. that, right? Yeah. So um, uh, this book came about because, uh, first of all, I, I love that genre. Yeah, um, you know, I, I love writing fiction, in addition to nonfiction. I've had a chance to write both and a lot of really other interesting stuff. You know, drids, visual dictionaries, and other things. Um, but so, Vivian Van Tassel, when I was working on Empire of Imagination, so you know, again, sorry to go back in time, but you know, 2013, yeah. 2014, when I was working on that book, uh, one of the things that I was so interested in in Gary's history, uh, Gary Gygax's real life history. Was that when he when he was a uh, he used to talk tell stories that when he was a kid when he was about 13, 10 to thirteen years old he would wander around um, the old Oakwood Sanitarium in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So Oak, Oakwood Sanitarium. What's anytime you hear sanitarium, you know your your ears sometimes perk, right? Yeah. So it, so when Gary was a kid in the fifties, Oakwood Sanitarium was a real place, and it was an abandoned sanitarium that was perched on the hill overlooking. Lake Geneva. You couldn't even make this place up. I've seen I've seen period pictures of what it looked like when it was abandoned. It was this old, like towering um, Romanesque looking building. All the windows were gone by then. It had turrets, and it was just it was like this creepy old looking building. So this was the Oakwood Sanitarium, and and it was known in town. If you were a young troublemaker, you would go wander around the ruins of Oakwood Sanitarium. That's what you did, right? Of course you did. That's yeah, what you did. yeah. Why not? So Gary would often talk about how one of his inspirations for for D and D and things like it was that he would get ideas from you know when he was a kid wandering around the the tunnels of Oakwood and so forth. Anyway, when I started looking into the real life history of Oakwood Sanitarium, I tripped on all these different sanitariums in Lake Geneva. There was like a half dozen sanitariums in Lake Geneva. So, so if you don't know it, if you don't know the town, Lake Geneva is like a it's got a full town time population of like eight thousand people. It's a small town, right? So I was like, what in the, why in the, why are all these sanitariums in Lake Geneva? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons. There's actually a lot of really good real world reasons for it. Um, but um, uh, it's because the town, if you don't know it, is otherwise a, a really, um, it's this beautiful kind of woodsy fishing town in the middle of, of, of southeastern Wisconsin. And, but what was unique about the town is it's got this big, beautiful, deep fishing lake 20 miles around. And it's, um, it's a really Tony town. It became like the, the country retreat of really wealthy families from Milwaukee, from, um, uh, from Chicago, maybe in as far as, maybe even as far as, as, uh, uh, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so a lot of like really wealthy families had huge mansions on the shores of, of Lake Geneva or Geneva Lake as, as it's actually called, uh, the, the Schwinn family, the Wrigley family, the Maytag family, like, like yeah, those yeah. families had mansions. So Lake Geneva is just this really interesting town. They used to call it the Newport of the West. So that that's where Gary Gygax grew up. That's where he did a lot of his D&D work. That's where he founded TSR, et cetera, et cetera. But Oakwood Sanitarium was there, as were all of these other ones around the turn of the century, around the 19th, the uh, turn of the 20th century. So when I was doing my first book, I landed on this concept, and it hit me like a lightning bolt one day to get an idea. It was a big what if. And the what if was, well, what if um, – all of these people, the reason they had so many sanitariums in Lake Geneva was because people were being committed because they were having delusions. And specifically, they were having delusions because they would go out in the woods and they would see bears with the faces of owls. 
and they would see floating eyeballs with 10 eye stalks on top of them. And they would see panthers with tentacles coming out of their backs. So they would see these things, they would get committed. And that's why there were so many sanitariums in Lake Geneva. And then a number of years later, when Gary was working on creating D&D, he wasn't doing it based on what he imagined, rather what he saw. Oh. Right? This was the what if about the whole thing. So cut ahead now to where the, the book starts. This young girl moves into town. It was It's the town called Midnight Lake, where the fabled Beasts and Battlements is okay. created. Okay. And Beasts and Battlements, of course, was created by Garrison Arnold which is a mixture yeah, of yeah. perhaps the two co-creators of D&D. Um, and so you get the idea, but the idea being that um, uh, this game is real. And uh, I don't have owl bears, but I have vulture bears, and I have leaguer spheres, and I have other things. And so uh, what I would say, this 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 book was a love letter to D&D. Um, and ultimately, it's actually like, I, I think it's a really great book if you're trying to like introduce kids to the notion of tabletop role-playing games, yeah. especially fantasy tabletop games. Um, there's a lot of that in this book because it, it, the whole backdrop is this idea that this town where this game was formed and basically not to spoil anything too much, but Vivian, of course, comes to realize that this weird game she's playing, Beasts and Battlements, um, she ends up finding some case files of one of these old sanitariums and there's a lot of weird coincidences of what's in the game Beasts and Battlements versus what um, she finds in these old case files from these sanitariums. So it's a really fun book um, that I think is really fun, not only for the middle grade audience, but also for longtime gamers. Right. People have said, yours in my era, where if you've been playing D&D a long time, uh, I'd like to think there's a lot of things in here, especially if you know the story of D&D a little bit, uh, that a lot of people have a lot of fun with. So yeah, Vivian Van Tassel and the Secret of Midnight Lake has been a huge trip for me. It has been so much fun. I've been, I've been touring um, elementary and middle schools uh, all all fall actually doing presentations uh, on that, so it's been really fun. Very different audience than what I'm used to. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I look forward to it. And the thing is, is so many people are like, "Oh, it's middle grade." I'm sorry, but every adult I know has read a Harry Potter or a Percy Jackson or a Aragorn. You know, that, that that doesn't mean anything. More often than not, it's adults that are reading those books, and probably just as much, if not more, than the kids. So totally. So well, yeah. it, it's one of my favorite types of reading. For what it's worth, one thing I do love about middle grade and, and often young adult as well is that it's not trying to overcomplicate the writing. It's pretty right. straightforward. It's meant to be written for a relatively you know younger audience uh, who might be at a little bit lower proficiency than say adult adult books but it, it's actually it's it just it reads like brain candy so i've always liked that type of reading and i hope i was successful at least in in my in my uh my first shot at it so it's been really fun super fun awesome is it gonna be a sequel mm. yes it is intended to be a trilogy uh and that one is um uh that's published by simon and schuster uh, aladdin is the is the imprint and yeah so it's intended to be a trilogy i'm just dipping my toe into the second book now writing the, the second book so uh fingers crossed it'll all work out well and we'll have something you know before too long anyway excellent excellent uh you have you've been doing a lot of events but you're kind of pewtering down on events right so you've only got a, a few maybe kind of sort of on the horizon coming up yeah yeah um so yeah it's been a ton of events because we've had so many book rollouts this year um you know again this is for for books for me um, it's been four books this year, which is, is, is unheard of for me. And I, I'm really kind of limping to the finish line at this point. Um, you know, the, the Dritzt book, um, uh, which is the the first uh, DK Visual Dictionary of D&D, that came out in March. And then I had a little bit of of, of running room. Uh, Vivian Van Tassel came out at the end of August. Uh, Lore and Legends, the sequel to Art and Arcana, came out in early October. And then Heroes Feast 2, or Flavors of the Multiverse, came out in, or in just the beginning of this month. So... With all of that, I've been running around everywhere doing very different types of events, as you say. Right. I've been doing school events, which are very, and library events, which are very different than like bookstores and conventions like Gen Con and so forth. I think, in terms of, I, I'm not even sure if there's anything other than schools um, that I, I still have a few school events coming up. I'm not sure if I have anything else on the docket other than I think Emerald City Comic Con in um, February, which is in Seattle. I think that's the next thing that's on the horizon. Okay. Awesome. Oh, and then, of course, Gary Con Gary in Con. Lake Geneva. Yeah. Very kind of like Geneva. Nice. But then that's in March. Okay. Sounds good. Hope, hopefully I can get to that one. There's that one. And then there's another one in Wisconsin. Uh, um, I'm always told I got to go to that one. Everybody keeps game hole con game in Hulk November. Con. Yeah, like, you need to go to game hole con. And I missed it this year, but I'm like, I, sh I, I need to go to that one next year. Everybody, everybody that's been on the show is that was there. And they're like, you need to come and we can all go have drinks. It's like, okay, I'll have to go next year. <laughs> and it's just down the road. Know, so I have it. 
I want to give my highest endorsement to both of, actually, all of the conventions, all, all of the above. Gen Con, um, owned by Peter Atkinson these days, who is the founder of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, Gen Con, of course, if you know Gen Con, huge convention in Indianapolis. But Gary Con in Lake Geneva, you know, one of the birthplaces of D&D there. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Gamehole Con in Madison, both run by great friends of mine. And they're not small conventions anymore, for the record, no. but smaller. I mean, a few thousand people versus 60,000 people. And they're awesome. They're just a wonderful gaming conventions, great people. So I, I give both my highest endorsement. Awesome. Awesome. People can find you at empireofimagination.com, uh, on X or Twitter at Mike Whitwer, Facebook backslash Michael.Whitwer.94. And you're on Instagram, Unearthed Arcanist. Over there. That's very good. I, by the way, I don't think I remember my own Facebook handle so thank you for that i was like yeah i think that's right you're welcome I, yeah now yeah, you know write it down, write that yeah. down. <laughs> exactly for all of our listeners listening we are still gonna have some amazing guests coming up for the rest of the year including monty cook games founder shanna germain is going to be joining us as well as the owner of fate of the norns rpg andrew valkoskis is going to be returning to epic realms so please rate and review as well as follow and subscribe to stay up to date on everything going on in Epic Realms. Also, don't forget it's Movember. Help us in our fight against prostate and testicular cancer. Spread the word, get checkups, and if you can, donate. I will put the link in our little show notes at the end of the show. So thank you guys so much. For Michael Whitwer, I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. Mm -hmm.